Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to City Beautiful Church. We're continuing on with our series, Charismata. We have two gifts left today. I'm going to be doing the spiritual gift of mercy. Next week, we're going to be doing the spiritual gift of faith. But I I wanted to begin today just by practicing a a meditation on a portion of Psalm 145. It was one of the readings uh, that the calendar laid out for us this week. And it it was so beautiful because it, it spoke to me Um, specifically about this idea of what mercy is. And so I thought it'd be a really good practice for us today uh, just to begin in that kind of meditative space, carrying on that attitude of worship. So, um, you know, I've encouraged you to this before, but I think if you can, wherever you're at, if you can kind of close your eyes, um, if you can just get more in a posture to receive, even if that means, you know, literally putting your hands out in front of you, um, that a lot of times our body posture leads our heart posture. And just kind of uh, slow down your breathing, just get into this space, recognizing God is here and that he's present with you. And I'm going to read the words uh, from Psalm 145. And I just pray that the Lord would uh, even now be revealing something to you about what mercy truly is because of his presence to us. So God be with us and would you speak to us through the words of this psalm. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might. So that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. Father, today, as we hone in on this spiritual gift of mercy, I pray that we would leave today understanding something of your heart for us so that we would be transformed by recognizing that who we are is not based upon what we know. It's not based upon how strong we are, how capable we are. It's not based upon how right we are but the fact that we are your beloved children, 
Father, may this identity time and again be for us a gift to be received and not a status to be earned. So bless us, Lord, as we bless you this morning. And may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I hope, you know, through this series, that really is the goal that, yes, we understand the spiritual gifts that God has given us, but on a deeper level, we understand the heart of God on display in the work of Jesus, in the work of the Holy Spirit that washes over us, that transforms us so that when we come to the gifts, that's what we really recognize they are. They're these little pieces of the heart of God on display in and through his people in a way that it rescues people back into relationship with him. So like I said, we have two gifts to go, mercy and faith. Um, and these gifts, these are, I, these are so big. It's, to me, you know, we started with um, the fivefold ministry, apostles, evangelists, prophets, teachers, and pastors. And we talked about how those gifts are like the foundation of the church. That those different offices or spirits within the church, however you want to look at it, those vocations, they provide um, this foundation uh, for the rest of the gifts to be able to thrive so that our community has all aspects of the heart of God present. And I think if the fivefold ministry is almost like the foundation of the building that we want to build, this temple to the Lord that's based on our gifts. Mercy and faith are almost like the soil um, that holds up the foundation. They're, they're kind of mega gifts that underline all of the others, um, that the fivefold create the order for our community, but mercy and faith become the engine for the whole thing. All of our movement is guided by that. And again, we're all called to mercy, we're all called to faith, but some of you are specifically gifted with mercy to kind of lead that conversation to reveal to all of us where we're called to go. And some of you have a gift of faith that's meant to inspire us to not be uh, so settled in where we're at right now in our faith. So um, if you did uh, register high in the gift of mercy, I want you to go ahead and give us a shout out in the chat right now so that we can celebrate you. And as I'm teaching about mercy, I hope the people in our community will think of you uh, when I'm talking about these things. So, uh, you know, how do we define mercy? It's a really hard one. You know, you've heard it before, and I think it's an okay place to start that mercy is us not getting what we do deserve, and grace is us getting what we don't deserve. And there's, there's little tropes like that within the church that I think are fine. Um, but, you know, when I was really sitting there with this, like, what, what is the gift of mercy? And specifically when I've seen mercy demonstrated through God's people, what does it look like? And this is what I came to, that people with the gift of mercy put the bleeding heart of Jesus on display and remind us why we do what we do in the kingdom. That if mercy is the engine for all of our doing, for our vocations, for our purpose as the church, um, it's reminding us why it is that we do these things first and foremost, that it is the, the bleeding heart of Jesus on display through his people. And mercy is so important for us as part of the, the saving work of Jesus in our lives because if we're honest, we tend to turn away from the pain of the world for the sake of our own comfort. Um, many of us have a certain amount of privilege in our lives 
that maybe comes from our socioeconomic status, maybe it comes from uh, race, family position, whatever it might be, that enables us to be able to turn a blind eye to the pain of the world. Or that we could be more selective when we quite literally turn it on and off when it comes to our news feeds, when it comes to television or whatever it might be. Um, and the problem with that kind of lifestyle is that it perpetuates this self-absorption. You know, and I've talked about this as I think part of American civil religion um, redoubles to us this hyper-individualistic notion of what it means to be an American. That I'm a self-made person, that I am the center of my own story, um, that I get to define myself, I get to choose into and out of whichever narratives that I want. And so much of that just reinforces the fact that I'm egotistical and self-absorbed. And I think part of what it looks like for Jesus to save Americans is specifically that he saves us from that hyper-individualistic, egotistical mindset that puts us on center stage where we get to choose in and out of whatever we want. Sometimes we think that it's based on suffering, but if we're honest, it's really based on discomfort. Um, so there's a, just a little nugget that could be a whole other sermon series and I don't want to go there. Um, but what we recognize is that the kingdom people, you and I, that have been saved into this new family that God is creating, we are to be motivated by compassion in the same way that Jesus was motivated by compassion. So the words mercy and compassion are almost interchangeable. And to me, compassion is that overwhelming sense that I cannot help but to be with you in the midst of your mess, in your your life. And the people with the gift of mercy are especially drawn to places of injustice, where they see people that are being uh, oppressed or overlooked or marginalized. And when we think of mercy in that angle, then I think what we begin to realize is rather than being something rather passive, that idea of mercy is, is you not receiving the thing that you deserve, we recognize that mercy is actually a forward movement. It's fierce. Mercy has teeth. It has passion. It has drive behind it because mercy fights for those who are in pain. Indeed, the word compassion, compassion, means co-suffering. So part of being a compassionate person is to suffer alongside of those who are suffering, to actually shed our privilege, to overcome our discomfort and our avoidance of suffering, to enter into the stories of other people and to come alongside of them and to suffer with them whatever it is that they're suffering. And this is actually what we see in the story of Jesus time and again. And you know, it was so hard for me to think of like, what is one story where we see the, the heart of Jesus on display, this heart for compassion. The reality is that's what the Gospels are, is, is the heart of God on display through the person of Jesus. But um, as I was praying through it, I did feel called to one particular portion of Scripture that kind of has two parts. This is in Matthew chapter 9, uh, verses 35 to 38. So Jesus has uh, preached the Sermon on the Mount, kind of 5 through 7. 8 and 9 is a series of stories of Jesus. He's preached about the kingdom. Now he's going out and he's demonstrating the kingdom where he's healing people, where he's raising the dead, where he's preaching. And, and it, 8 and 9 are just all of these little stories that kind of give a broad perspective of the work that Jesus was doing in administering the kingdom. And so Matthew, the end of Matthew 9 is really kind of 
the writer summing up this little portion of Jesus' ministry. And then the turnover into 10 is basically going to be Jesus has been doing all these things. And so now he turns to his disciples. He says, okay, guys, I'm going to start sending you out. So this is Matthew 9, verses 35 to 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So first of all, in this little portion, we have, again, what we've looked at time again is that Jesus is teaching in the synagogues. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, the new reality of God that's on the move. But then he adds action onto that, that he's going around and he's healing people. He's raising them from the dead. There's always action to the, the, to the kingdom. It's not just words, but deeds. And I love this little portion here where it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. So why did Jesus do what he did? It's because he was motivated by compassion. And this is the bleeding heart of Jesus on display for the world. And it's fascinating. Um, in Greek, the word for compassion is uh, this Greek word splachnon, and it, it actually means uh, to clench one's bowels. It's, it's to feel it in your gut, because in the ancient world, that's where the seed of compassion was. It was in your gut. Now, have you ever been in that situation? Maybe it's when you're watching the news, but maybe it's, it's, it's sitting alongside of, of, a, of a family member or a friend who's experiencing in tremendous suffering and, and you're, you're tense. You feel it in the core of who you are. And that feeling, it's almost like it, it, it attaches you to this person where you're thinking, I there is nowhere else in the world that I'm even capable of being right now knowing that you feel the way that you feel. That's what we're seeing here in the person of Jesus. So when it says he had compassion on them, Jesus's, his guts were clenched and tight by being, just feeling the sense of the pain of the people that he was encountering and being drawn into their stories. It's Jesus saying, I can't help but be with you to, to, to want to offer my presence to you as this reassuring and healing presence that God is with you. And so then when Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, he's not thinking about systems and programs and building this really great organization. It's all motivated by, I want to see God's people, his, his treasured children, rescued and redeemed and brought out of these places of suffering. And so that's where we're going to see um, the turnover into Matthew chapter 10. And what we find here is something of a spiritual path that Jesus lays in front of his first disciples, but he also lays in front of you and me in learning what it means to become a merciful person. So this is Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them the authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip, 
and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. I love this. And then Jesus goes on and he kind of gives more specific instructions about what they are to take with them and what they're not to take with them and what they can expect and the reality of what this kind of lifestyle is going to to set before them. Um, But this is really neat. It's just a great little switch where in in verse 1 he says, Jesus called his 12 disciples. And then in the next verse, these are the names of the 12 apostles. This is the first time that they're called apostles, which if you remember, we looked at at the beginning of the series that apostles are kind of spiritual entrepreneurs that are going out into new territory, casting big vision for what the kingdom of God will look like on earth and gathering people together under that vision. And it's just this very subtle change that Matthew makes. And, and how do we understand that difference? A disciple is simply one who receives. And this is what we see at the very end of this passage. Freely you have received, freely give. So these guys have been watching Jesus for you know, however long this ministry has been going on. They've been listening to him preach. They've been watching him heal, uh, cast out demons, raise people from the dead. And they've just been absorbing this information. But one of the things that I hope that we see in this is it's not just are they taking notes on like, okay, here's how you do a deliverance, but they're, they're looking at this is what compassion looks like. This is what it looks like to follow a merciful person and to be wowed by how precious they consider the people they encounter on a day-by-day basis. Again, because of our hyper-individualistic society, we shut ourselves off to being able to see the people that we're in contact with every day. We walk by people on the street, we sit with people in the office, and we shut ourselves off and we don't notice. But I think what these early disciples hopefully picked up from Jesus is Jesus' mercy began by noticing that he saw people, that he listened to people, that he was drawn in by their stories. And that was the vehicle for his compassion of feeling the, the pain of other people at the core of who he is. And so then when it comes time to be apostles, Jesus is sending them out. He's saying, now it's time for you to freely give the things that you've witnessed me say and do. I want you to go out and practice. But again, here's where Jesus is such a great shepherd. He's such a great pastor because he doesn't say, okay, uh, go as far as you can. Here's a one-way ticket to the, the ends of the earth. Just go out and just kind of wing it. Just kind of trust the Holy Spirit to lead you or whatever. He, he actually gives them this very good program that helps them understand that. And what we see here is it's laid out like this. He says, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Okay. So, what are the moves of compassion? Number one, we begin in Israel. We begin in Judea. We're going to begin with the people that are just like us. Number two, we're going to go to Samaria. Samaritans are those people. If you know the biblical story, you know Samaritans kind of used to be related to the Israelites. They kind of worship the same God, but they're, they're these despised 
distant cousins of the Israelites. Um, that they, the Israelites consider them unworthy, unclean. Um, just, it's almost more insulting because they're related than if they were just Gentiles. And then, of course, the final uh, category is Gentiles, which was basically everybody else in the known world. And so Jesus is saying, just start with the people that are just like you. There's going to come a point where I'm going to push you to have compassion on the people that you despise that are really uncomfortable for you. And then eventually you're going to be able to love all, all people. So I want to take those three beats. First of all, the first move of compassion is to have our hearts broken for those who are just like us. The writer Anne Lamott said, the greatest gospel we can preach is the gospel of me too. When we see our stories in the stories of other people, when there's something there where we go, oh, yes, I actually know what that's like. There's a really powerful authority comes in that for us to administer the love of the kingdom because we find a sense of commonality. We see ourselves in other people's story. You know, for me, growing up in the church and being a pastor's kid, I have a tremendous heart of compassion for people who have that same story, that they've grown up in the church, they, they, they know scripture, they know what it means to be part of the faith community, but they feel just stuck or dried up or getting to that point of feeling like, well, is this all there is? There's got to be more to the Christian life. Um, and especially people that grew up in the church where they weren't allowed to ask questions, where questioning or doubt was, uh, was a, a horror that was meant to be denied that you're just supposed to toe the party line when it comes to your faith. These are the kinds of people that I say, ah, yes, I know that story because that is mine. And God has given me a special authority in that. Indeed, I think the first calling that he places on your life is to the place that you just were. The people that you can come alongside of them and say, oh, yes, me too. I get that. I know that story because that's my story. The problem is when we only choose to say in Israel, which is to say when we only have compassion for the people that are just like us, that very quickly leads us to tribalism, where we become bound by a common story, but then any kind of diversity or the uncommon story, the thing to which we cannot relate, actually becomes threatening to us because we begin to find our identity in having the common story. This is what we find in nationalism. We all have the same story because of our tribe and our nation, and it's number one, and it's the best. Everybody else is the worst. And that's where tribalism begins to rise when we do not move because of a heart of compassion out beyond our own people. And that brings us to the second move of compassion, which is to have our hearts broken for those who aren't like us. The stories that we cannot enter into because we don't necessarily understand them. In my former life, many of you know that I was a high school art teacher. And my very first job at the, the ripe young age of 23 was an inner city school in Nashville, Tennessee. I was thrown in in the middle of the year. The teacher before me had just quit. And I was shocked when I got into this school. There was no budget. I had construction paper that had been eaten away by rats over the years. Um, the, you know, all the paints were dried up. The crayons had fused together over years of disuse. Uh, it was an absolute mess. Um, so I had to make what I make do with what I had. Um, and at 23, I was so 
young. I mean, I had a, a class with a 20-year-old student in it, and, uh, and I was the same age as a lot of my students, older brothers and sisters. So that made it really difficult sometimes uh, to be able to find uh, a sense of authority within these, this classroom. But the thing that was most powerful to me was being able to bear witness to the stories of my students. This is an inner city school in Nashville. It was 85% black. It was 10% uh, white very few other minorities. A lot of kids were being bussed in. The school system there was a bit of a mess. Um, so a low-income community, uh, no budget for the arts. Uh, just, it was a really difficult situation. And I remember sitting with some of my kids and being so shocked by what their day-to-day life was like in contrast to me. I grew up in a relatively middle-class home in a small town in, um, you know, in Northern Ireland, then a small town in Michigan, then a small town in rural Virginia. I mean, I had kids that were uh, getting ready to, uh, to pledge to be into gangs, the Bloods or the Crips. I had uh, two half-brothers. One was a Blood, one was a Crip. They lived in the same house, and it was getting shot up almost every week. Um, every year, we lost at least one student to gun violence. Um, but I remember one, one girl, she was in the ninth grade, um, and she was just, I don't know what the more politically correct, let's say she was... Uh, behaviorally challenged. She was a very difficult young lady um, and she made my class miserable almost every day. But in talking with her other teachers, I found that this was a common pattern but we all knew, like, she's, she's actually really smart. What's going on here? So one day I actually pulled her out of one of her other classes and took her to one of the conference rooms in the main um, kind of office area and I sat across her and I said, what's going on? Like, you're smart. I know you're smart. But you, you just so consistently act out when you're in my class. And I know from talking to your other teachers, it's the same thing. She said, do you really want to know? I said, yes, absolutely. She said, when I get home every day, my mom isn't around. Because she's already out getting ready to, to go out clubbing every day. Her mom's 34, 35. This girl's 14, 15. She said, so I have to get home. I have to take care of my little brothers who were 9 and 10. I have to help them with their homework. I have to cook for them. I have to put them to bed. And then I have to do my own homework because my mom's not around. And being in school is the only time that I actually get to be a child. And I was, first of all, so surprised by how lucid and self-aware she was. But secondly, that she was living a story that I, I didn't understand. You know, I grew up with two parents who were around and, 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 and did their best with us, and um, I felt supported. And I couldn't think myself into her story, but I found my heart broken open for her. And I think that was really this second type of compassion. If the first is to be able to say, I know exactly what that's like, I think the next stage in our development of compassion is to say, I have no idea what that's like, but I still want to somehow be a presence to you. I want to bear witness to your story above and beyond what it is that I understand. I don't know what that story is, but I'm with you in it. 
And this is when we begin to understand the radical nature of the ministry of Jesus, that not only did he uh, reach out to other working and middle-class Jews and just kind of in his tribe, but all these little categories that Jesus had of people that he really placed a special emphasis on, that he was especially fond of, that Jesus would talk about the least of these, the people that are despised and overlooked by society. That Jesus would talk to us about loving our enemies. Our enemy is anybody who calls us to question our identity and whether or not we're on the right side of history. All these different categories of Jesus begin to break down the sense of tribalism that we recognize compassion, that mercy is calling us to something more than just the people that are like us. And I think this ties into what I spoke on last week with hospitality core question to me of hospitality is how do you offer decency to people that you don't agree with? What, is, what does it look like to be compassionate to people that you would normally dismiss? <clears throat> what does it look like to practice mercy with people that you actually despise? That they're kind of threatening to you in the same way that the Samaritans were despised by the Israelites who are the people in your life, groups of people that you don't want anything to do with? Is it perhaps that Jesus is calling you into your own personal Samaria to learn what does it mean to love there? What does it mean to, to demonstrate the bleeding heart of Jesus for the people that make us uncomfortable? There's this beautiful line in Psalm 85, uh, verse 10. And it says, Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And it's such a beautiful image to me that I think there's, you know, on one side we have righteousness and truth. Like, things are defined and they're correct and they're in the right order and everything is as it should be. And then on the other side we have mercy and peace. And those two things often we falsely put in conflict, that we believe either I'm going to be a merciful person or I'm going to be a righteous person. But if we're truly kingdom people, we recognize that all of those things need one another. That truth without mercy isn't truth. It's maybe factual accuracy. But mercy without truth is just permissiveness. That righteousness needs peace and peace needs righteousness. And when you and I, when we give ourselves over to Jesus, when we allow the Spirit of Jesus to transform us from the inside out, we begin to reconcile these kinds of areas in our lives. But it only comes through following Him on a journey of compassion, of loving those that are just like us and loving those with whom we, dis- whom we might despise. And that brings us to the final move of compassion, which is to be broken open for the whole world, just like Jesus was. That the more Jesus calls us to love people that we're very uncomfortable with or even that we're threatened by, that it makes us question our identity, it exposes to us our own prejudices, we find that the more and more people that we're called to love, the more it breaks down those dividing walls of hostility within our own hearts. And before long, we realize there is no uh, economic class or race or sexuality or gender identification or age. None of those human barriers can prevent us from loving people well. And that's the ultimate goal of where we're called to the ends of the earth, that there is no border or boundary or definition that prevents us from being able to enter into people's story with that heart of compassion to see them loved into an encounter with God.
even the most famous line in the Bible, probably John 3.16, you see it at all the sporting events, it doesn't say, so God was so fed up with the world that he decided he was going to send his only son because his son wasn't doing anything that day. It says, no, God so loved the world that Jesus is the love of God on display. It was the compassion of God. It's not that God is sick of you, that he is so fed up with how you keep missing the mark. None of that is true. It's God is so desperately in love with you that he couldn't help himself, that God felt your pain, your suffering in his gut. And he said, I can't not be with my children. And so he sends Jesus to rescue the whole world. And unfortunately, this is not necessarily the way that our society is built, that we don't value compassion nearly to the level that we should. If any of you have ever been in a jury, you would know this from the juror's creed, which is that we are to value logic Uh, and leave our emotions behind. And that's how we make decisions when it comes to what we talk about as justice, which has very little to do with kingdom justice, that we need to be logical and clinical um, and, and put all of our emotions on the back burner because our society overall, when we're talking about how to create a just society, we value intelligence over our emotions. But the extreme version of that, when we hide or, or, or uh, discount all of our emotionality in order to be rational to make decisions, the extreme of that is called a, being a psychopath. Like, that's literally a pathology. When you do things because they make sense without any of your emotions weighing into it. And indeed, in the previous century, that's what we saw in Nazi Germany, that... Um, that the, the, the authors of the Third Reich and uh, the extermination of the Jews and so many other people in Europe justified it to the German people by commending them for making decisions based on what was logical and removing their emotions from the place. And it enabled Germany to enact what they called the final solution. It was a very logical way of solving this supposed problem that the Germans had. But what they asked the German people to do was to kill their emotions, to kill the place of compassion in order to make the right decisions. And if you know your history, especially your church history, you know that through that time in Nazi Germany in the 1930s, many churches actually just went along with this. Churches, churches, people who knew that Jesus is the bleeding heart of God on display for the whole world actually went along with this supposedly logical solution to German greatness that came through Hitler and his followers. But there was a resistance in Germany, that there was a lot of pastors and theologians that gathered themselves together in what was called the confessing church to say, no, this is not of the kingdom. This is not what we're called to. And this is actually splitting people in two and trying to separate out logic from emotionality. And one of those theologians is a man named Helmut Thielik. And I came across this quote this week. He said, tell me how much you know of the sufferings of your fellow man, and I will tell you how much you have loved them. When I read that, it, it hit me in the gut. Now, I'm sure if, if uh, Helmut Thielik was writing today, maybe he wouldn't say your fellow man, but it also extends to women and people who don't identify in, in binary genders. It's all people, fellow people. Tell me how much you know of someone suffering, and I will tell you how much you have loved them. 
And I've said this before, listening and loving are so close that they're practically the same thing. As I spoke of last week with the story of Daryl Davis, how can you hate me if you don't even know me? And this is what the gift of compassion offers us, that people who are so gifted in our communities, they, they lead us into these deeper understandings of the heart of Jesus to enter into other people's stories, to bear witness, to offer solidarity, and to see the kingdom of God revealed in the suffering places of the world. And we need mercy and compassion today, now, more than ever. We cannot turn a blind eye to the suffering that is happening all around us. But we have to listen. We have to know, we have to feel the suffering of the people in the world around us or else we cannot possibly truly love them. And so I want to offer just a few observations on people that have the gift of mercy and then we're going to spend some time today praying. So people with the gift of mercy, they are so justice-oriented and they want to dive in. They want to be right next to the people who are oppressed. And because of this, they can often struggle with focus. They just get overwhelmed so easily by how much pain there is in the world. And so a really good practice for people who have a gift of mercy is to slow down to say, what's actually mine to do? Who are the specific people that I'm called to love today? And to not spread yourself so thin that you're actually not very effective anywhere, but to trust that God is ultimately in control. He knows what he's doing. And when he calls you to this piece, he'll offer that other piece to someone else. Uh, people with the gift of mercy need spiritual disciplines that time and again recenter them on Jesus. And a lot of times those spiritual disciplines feel like a waste of time, practicing meditation, uh, you know, reading scripture, these sorts of things. It feels like, why would I do this when I could be out there on the front lines? But you actually need that inner contemplative life in order to properly fuel a life of action. And people with the gift of mercy are so often prone to feelings of rejection when their bleeding hearts are uh, critiqued or corralled by people within the church community. And so it's really important for the rest of us, when you know someone has the gift of mercy, um, you need to honor that in them, you need to invest in them, and you need to help them find what is the best outlet for them to use that gift. So we're going to spend some time in prayer. And I hope that, you know, I've conveyed to you by now, in order to truly understand what mercy really is as opposed to what it isn't, we need to first of all look at what mercy is through the eyes of God. And so that's what this prayer is meant to do. I'm going to pray through several different um, arenas that speak to uh, our modern life. So I'm going to pray. You're going to respond at home with, Lord, have mercy. And I'm just going to leave a little bit of space um, for for you to pray out of your heart, your bleeding heart, your red-blooded heart, whatever it is that God puts on your heart. Maybe he's going to give you pictures of specific people. Maybe he's going to remind you of events and situations and news headlines, whatever it is. Just trust that God is speaking to you and he's putting things on your heart so that you can pray into them. Um, His mercy first and that our mercy would follow. So let's pray. With all our heart and with all our mind, let us pray to the Lord saying, Lord, have mercy. For the peace from above, for the loving kindness of God, 
and for the salvation of our souls, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the peace of the world, for the welfare of the Holy Church of God, and for the unity of all peoples, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For our elders and for our staff and leadership, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For our President Donald, for the leaders of the nations, and for all in authority, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the city of Orlando, for every city and community, and for those who live in them, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the good earth which God has given us, and for the wisdom and will to conserve it, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the aged and infirm, for the widowed and orphans, and for the sick and the suffering, especially those who are suffering from COVID-19, let us pray to the Lord. For the poor and the oppressed, for the unemployed and the destitute, for prisoners and captives, and for all who remember and care for them, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For deliverance from all danger, violence, oppression, and degradation, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. That we may end our lives in faith and hope, 
without suffering and without reproach, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Defend us, deliver us, and in your compassion protect us, O Lord, by your grace. Lord, have mercy. In the communion of saints, let us commend ourselves and one another and all our life to Christ our God. And together we say to you, O Lord, our God. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.